So many years ago, there was a couple salesmen, and they were sent to a little village in Africa by a British shoemaking company. And their job was to go there and to figure out things, to get a lay of the land, and then ga uh, gauge the potential for the market for shoes. And so the first one's there, and he reports back, and he said, the market, there's, there's no market here. Nobody's wearing any shoes. And then the second guy reports back and goes, man, the market here is awesome. Nobody's wearing any shoes. You're the only game in town. See, in life often, the perspective, how we look at things, really changes with, I think, our attitude, or, or we can either see that, that glass half full, as it were, or half empty. And so the, the first guy clearly was looking at it from a negative standpoint, where the second one had some uh, business chops and was looking at it from a positive standpoint. See, how we look at the world, how uh, we use our perspective, it often it, it shapes our lives, even. Uh, I think this is true uh, regardless of, of the beliefs we have, the circumstances we find ourselves in, the people we surround ourselves. Because like, you can have all of those things in spades. You can have very good, true beliefs. You can have fantastic circumstances. You can have good people around you, but yet have a terrible life. Why? So often because of the perspective we take, often it's our attitude. And it's usually amongst other people that we actually get to start seeing this in us because community is a really good mirror for us. It starts to be able to show us how we look at the world. It can show us our, uh, if we are, if there is a bit of a negative Nelly inside of us, like that, that first guy, the first shoe salesman, we can start to be able to see that in community. There was a, a wonderful, wonderful man named Jean Vanier, and he was a, a philosopher, he was a believer, and he spent the, the latter part of his life, uh, he passed away, but the, spent the latter part of his life caring for people with physical uh, disabilities and stuff like that, just a wonderful guy. And he writes about this, community is the place where we discover our own fragilities, wounds, and inability to love, where our limitations, our fears, and our egoism are revealed to us. We cannot get away from the negative that lies in ourselves, so we have to face it. Community life brings a painful revelation of our limitations, weaknesses, and darkness, and the unexpected discovery of the monsters within us. So in other words... As we live our lives, the circumstances we find ourselves in, the people that we surround ourselves with, can act as both buoyance, like can, can lift us up, or can start to drag us down. We can succumb to them, and we can start to find ourselves going into negative places unless we intentionally fight that tendency. Take my mom, for instance. When I was deep, deep in my addiction, there was not a lot of positive things to think about. But my mom found one in my ability to microwave hot dogs. I know, it sounds, it sounds really silly, but when I was living in her basement, I'd come up kind of like a troll, and I would get four hot dogs. There was always four hot dogs, and I would microwave them. And she would look at them the way I'd arrange them on the plate and go, 
those are some gourmet-looking hot dogs. Very, very artistic-looking, very delicious-looking hot dogs. And I don't know, it's like there, there's a bit of OCD in me, so I would arrange them always in a certain way on the plate, and there would be some symmetry with the, the ketchup and the mustard, so maybe they looked good. But, but she never failed to point this out to me. It was, it, was, it was one thing that she could kind of cling to, and it was easily the most patronizing thing that has ever been said to me in my whole life. But, but I'm glad she did it. Because it was, there was always something, at least there was something, there was something there to cling to. But I think often in our culture, we're taught something different as far as what to do about that, as far as the bright side. When it comes to tough people or tough circumstances, what are we often told to do? Run, right? Get out of there. Don't spend time on it. Don't think about it escape, don't deal with it, don't think, hope it goes away. This is often the advice that we get, and this is often how we deal with breaks in relationship. Think of divorce rates over the years and and different relationships breaking up, or our commitments. We're thinking of, of changing job rates that are happening or the diminishment of volunteerism that's going on in the West. So escapism, or, or worse, the negativity that usually involves or, or founds that desire to want to run from it, is actually killing, or can kill, community. See, Paul's been giving his friends, he's, we're, we're still in our series, this is the second to last uh, sermon in the series called Joy, and we're in the letter to Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul. And then he's been talking to his friends, giving them an idea of what it means to follow the man God, Jesus with all they have. The person who's done everything for them so that they even have an opportunity to have, as the movie would say, a wonderful life. So remember, the context of of this letter uh, has disunity threatening to break in. There's things that are going on, there's negativity knocking at the door. And Paul is saying to them that they have a choice, just like we have a choice. We can either allow the negativity to overcome us and succumb to it, breaking things apart, or we can either head it off at the pass or even in order to break away the negativity that's already growing or build ourselves up through a positive sense of community so that the negativity doesn't even have an opportunity to come in. It's sort of subverting that. So Paul's trying to to break something down before it even has a chance to break their community apart. Because remember, this is his beloved Philippian church. They aren't the gong show that the Corinthians are or anything like that. So in our short passage today, he wraps up his directives for the Christian life. He's been talking about that with one long sentence and it contains two appeals. The first one is to think about such things, and he's going to get into the virtues of a good life in verse 8. And then he's going to tell them to put it into practice. And that's what they've learned from Paul, and he's going to talk about that in verse 9. So he's telling them not to avoid, but to engage. Not to sit in negativity, but to seek the bright side. To live what they've learned. So we're going to read verses 8 and 9 now in chapter 4. And so he writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, 
whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. One thing that I find very, very interesting about this passage that Paul's talking about, particularly in verse 8, is the way he's engaging with the culture of the time. He's writing to a church that is uh, surrounded by, uh, it's a Roman colony, but it has been influenced deeply by Greek philosophy. And so the Greek philosophers would always be talking about virtues, how to live the virtuous life. And so Paul now uses six adjectives to describe six virtues, naming them. And everybody who is listening to this would have understood that what he's doing is, is in a sense, he's facing off with some of the Greek philosophers, not saying that what they're saying is untrue, but bringing it in to the community of the church. He's bringing it under the authority of God. So we're going to circle back around and we're going to break this down and get at some stuff that can help us get at God's peace. Because, and this is the big idea that is so important for us to get from this, not only for ourselves, this is very, very important for us, for our own souls, but also for people that we talk to. This is very important for them to know, and that's the peace of God is reachable. The peace of God is reachable. He has made it attainable for us. We can, we can achieve that. We can, uh, he's allowed us to attain it, to let it sink into us, and then to have it impact everything that we think, say, or do. This is why this passage, you've heard me talk about this a lot, uh, 4, 8, and 9, particularly verse 8, because this is, this is a, a metric. This is a, a, a thing that we can do. We can meditate on this to help us in our lives, and it can bring that peace of God. But we need to remember that this is an ongoing process. There's no checkbox. I have achieved the peace of God and now I can move on to the next thing and I'll just always have this peace of God without having to seek it anymore. And something that we continually need to be reaching over and over for. Not in a kill ourselves over it, but just making sure that we put into practice the things that Paul's talking about. Hence why he gets into that in verse 9. So we're going to go back over this, and then we're going to see that truth even clearer as we go through the two verses. So back to verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true. Pilate once asked Jesus, what is truth? Or for us, we could maybe ask the question, how important is truth? Because in, in our culture, there's, there's a bit of a, a war on truth. You know, there's my truth, and there's your truth, and let's just agree to disagree, and, and all of that stuff. But... I wonder if they would have the same attitude if, if they came over to my house and, and I offered them something to drink and they said yes and, and then I pulled out something from underneath the kitchen sink and labeled poison and I said, oh, don't worry about that. That's just its truth. You can, you can uh, make your own truth about that. But what exactly is Paul talking about? One commentator writes, although Paul normally associates truth when he talks about truth, with the truth about God and the truth of the gospel of Christ, in this context, remember, he's, he's discussing virtuous living in here. In this context, this list of virtues, he affirms whatever is true to be the proper subject of Christian thought. 
So thinking about whatever is true requires discernment to see the difference between what is true and what is false. Paul's command to think about whatever is true endorses the claim that all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. What does that mean? That means that everything that is true is necessarily rooted in God. God is is our ultimate reality. Everything that comes from him is necessarily true. It's a proper representation of the way things are. So to deny truth is to deny reality and to ultimately then deny God. For example, uh, a long time ago before I became a believer, I used to walk around and I would say, Christianity is stupid, right? It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's not true or whatever. But that was the problem is I didn't actually even ever ask that question until sometime later. Is it true? Like that's the question that people who, who uh, think that Christianity is silly or, or doesn't make any sense or, or whatever, that's not the discussion. The discussion is, is it true or not? And finally, I did ask the question, is it true or not? And here, here we are, right? Like now I'm here. I believe it is true, and that led me now, 12 years later, to be standing where I am right now. So think about things that are true. Next, he talks, he asks, or sorry, he, he says, whatever is honorable. Think about whatever is honorable. Do you guys remember when President Trump was elected? 2016, and I'm not going to get into, I'm not going to, this is going to turn into a Trump bashing session. But one thing I want to point out that when he did get elected, there was this movement that started to happen, and it was on social media, and maybe you'll remember, and it was was hashtag not my president. And what that meant was there was a group of people that said, this man that has been elected our president is a despicable human being, he doesn't represent me, nor would I think. He's not a good representative of me, so therefore he's not my president. Hashtag, hashtag, whatever. I don't know how to hashtag, so. But that's that's what they said. The problem with this was that the same people who were hashtagging not my president were the same people who would listen to certain kinds of music. Because Okay, why did they not like Trump? Because he, he objectified women, so they said, right? He uh, did things like he said mean things about immigrants. He would talk about certain other people uh, poorly and, stuff, and, and so on and so forth. His own life was not of, of the highest virtue. That was typically the, the complaints against him, and so therefore he was an ill-fit president. But the same people who were hashtagging not my president were listening to music that did what? Objectified women. Right? Like they, they would hold up people in entertainment culture who would treat women like they were objects, that they were sex objects. That was what these people would do. They would, they would do things in their own life. They would treat people in a certain way, the same way that they claim President Trump was doing. But it was okay for them, but not... So essentially, they, they were acting in such a way, I, I, I would argue, hypocritically... And so, therefore, it was exactly your president. Because you can't expect to live a dishonorable life, to think dishonorably, and then all of a sudden expect that you should have an honorable leader. So, in a sense, they got what they deserved. Paul's saying, no, we need to think about what is honorable. We need to think about what is honorable. Next, he says, whatever is just. 
Think about whatever is just. And usually when we think about it from a theological point of view, when we start getting into just, a couple of weeks ago, you may remember, we talked about, remember that 99 cent term justification, where we're declared righteous before God. We think about it in just in those terms, righteousness. And so uh, that type of discussion centers around the, the forgiveness of sins, through faith in Jesus Christ and coming into relationship with God. And we need to think about that because that is the key to having what John talks about in his gospel. The key to eternal life is relationship with God and that doesn't happen without faith and relationship with Jesus Christ. So we need to be thinking about that. But Paul in this case goes into a different realm of just as he's in this context talking about virtues This has to do with someone doing what is right. First century Jewish philosopher, a guy named Philo, he was rumored to have met Jesus' friend Peter. He writes, the just person is the stay of the human race. He brings his personal property to the community and gives unstintingly, so very, very generously, for the good of those who find a use for it. He then seeks from God who alone possesses all wealth that which he does not have. So it's a person who's looking out for the community, for the uplifting of people, so no one falls through the cracks. So we find, again, he's talking about just people as well as just actions. Think about that. There's always a a dualistic component, right? There's people who act in a certain way, but there's also the, the behaviors themselves. So Paul here is covering a lot of ground, and he's only halfway through the six. The next one, whatever is pure. And what he's getting at is morally pure, Pure, pure as the driven snow, as it were. See, Sarah has always been uh, an amazing example of me, or for me, for this. I remember when we first met, I called it her sweetness. Her sweetness. And it was, I just found it very attractive, because I, I don't know why, but until her, I hadn't noticed it in a lot of people. But then, Kind of like, you know, when you, you all of a sudden have a different car or you start wearing some different clothes or maybe you get a different haircut or something like that. All of a sudden you start noticing. I remember when I got my Mazda 3, all of a sudden it seemed like everybody was driving. I, mean, I, I would see them everywhere. You guys know what I'm talking about? The, those sorts of things. You, you start, you bring something into your life and all of a sudden it seems like you start noticing it in other places. All of a sudden I started noticing that same sweetness, that same purity in other people. It's not, it's not in all of us, but it is in a lot of us. I started noticing that. It became easier to spot. Because we, we probably all know somebody who, who never seems to say anything unkind. right? Of course, they're human, slip up once in a while. But, but generally speaking, don't typically say unkind things. Who always seem to look out for others. Who work hard. Who do these sorts of things. And there's just something very special about them. They have a, a purity like they're still a child. And, and not a, a nativity. But instead, they seem to focus or be able to look and strive for seeing the good in things and not sit in the muck of the negativity. And that helps them on their path as they continue to move forward. These people and their actions are pure. Now, Paul, he gets to my favorite. He he writes, we need to be thinking about whatever is lovely. Whatever is lovely. This is beauty. And I, I really love this. And uh, it's sadly, this is something that our culture has hijacked. Because can you guess what comes up if you Google beauty? What's what comes up just in droves, primarily? Can anyone guess? 
ish, yeah, that sort of thing. Cosmetics, beauty, so-called beauty products. We've taken something that is, for, for those of you who like philosophy, beauty is considered one of the three transcendentals. And this is with goodness and truth. So it's good. You'll, you'll often hear me say, or maybe other people say that, goodness, truth, and beauty. Goodness, truth, and beauty. These are three things that help uh, explain the way the world is because they're derivatives of God. So they've taken this wonderful thing of beauty and they've turned it into eyeliner. It's very, very, very sad. Because beauty is an essential part of who God is. This is why we have this, the beauty of creation, this fireworks display that goes on all around us and in the night, is because this is who God is. He's put part of himself into creation, into all of us. That's why when you read through the book of, of Esther, if you were to uh, read it in the, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, I don't know if it's technical, but I had to say that, uh, the, the word that describes Esther's face is the same word that Paul's using here for lovely, for beautiful. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, the Jewish people were saved on account of Esther being hot, right? If, if she wasn't beautiful, it, it, there's no more Jewish people. Right? Like that, it's quite as simple as that. I just finished reading it again and it just it blows my mind how amazing. He, she was the queen of Babylon and Xerxes found her attractive and she was able to save the people of Israel through her, not her beauty didn't save the day, it just got her foot in the door. It was her incredible selflessness and, of course, Uncle Mordecai. But there's that loveliness that is given to her through God, this beauty. My friends, he's a chicken farmer, and his farm sometimes does, or each year now, does annual flower festivals in Chilliwack. And so him and I were uh, talking yesterday, and we were talking about what it feels like to sit in the beauty amongst thousands of dahlias, or tulips, or sunflowers, just the, the feeling that we can get being amongst things like that. And this may not be the, the stereotypical kind of conversation that real men have. <laughs> Football. Yet, fixing cars. Uh, yet, the appreciation of beauty is one of the most calming, pleasurable things that someone can do, and that is a gift from God. So Paul doesn't, he doesn't stop there, though. He doesn't say... Stop at beauty. He's got one more, and he says, whatever is commendable. And this concept is a little bit simpler, I think, uh, and just means that whatever words or actions or persons are well spoken of, people deserve these, by people, these things deserve our attention. See, Paul is, is soon, he's going to point out himself when we get to verse 9, but he's already done it in the letter, himself as an example to follow. He's commending himself. But we know that we can be looking at others as well. We can be looking at the actions and the, the persons in front of us. See, it's true that I could stand here and I could point at each and every one of you and I can list something that's commendable about you. Every single one of you. 
And for some of you, it's going to be something that you've done or that you do, right? It's going to be actions. For others, it's going to be the, the actual person, right? There, there's a person that's reached a certain point in their walk with Jesus, and you would consider them a commendable person. See, it's important for us to be able to give credit where credit is due when we think about these things because it helps us find our way. I don't know about you, but when I see something commendable in another person, it drives me to want to emulate that. I'm like, man, I want to, I want to be that kind of person. I want to do that. I want to treat people like that. I want to have that kind of attitude about things. So Paul's given us now, he's given us these six virtues and they're all worth considering. He's saying, consider all of these. But now he's going to tie them into an overall picture of what or who we are journeying towards, the person that we are becoming. Remember the other 99 cent theological word, sanctification, right? God is, he loves us as we are, but too much to let us stay that way. Remember that? He's wanting to form us continually in his image. And so he says, if there's any excellence, and the, the term excellence, again, this isn't found elsewhere in Paul's letters. Paul's bringing this out as, as special usage, and it means excellence of character or exceptional civic virtue. He's borrowing from the philosophers again. So we might say that this is a good person, somebody who acts with excellence. They're a good person. What they do is good and right most of the time, right? So actions can be excellent as well. It can be the person, can be the action. So for these Greek philosophers, this was the primary objective, to identify, to define these virtues, and then to try to seek after them. But here's where the Greeks got it wrong. Either they didn't have the right goal in mind, or they didn't take it far enough. They didn't go far enough. So uh, to use an example, the philosopher Plato, not Plato, the, uh, the kid's toy, but Plato, common mistake, he wasn't very malleable. But anyway, he, uh, he would say that we, the, the existence that we live, because of a lack of understanding, we're essentially, he used the allegory of we're all in a cave. And the world that we see around us is like we're looking at the back of the cave and there's a fire and we see shadows. And those shadows are to us real life, but in fact, they're only shadows. We're only getting a glimpse of what is real. We don't understand what is real. We need somebody to show us what is real, but we can't get out of the cave. So we can never really know eternal life. So we're just, we're kind of left to our own devices. We'll never really know exactly what's going on. But where Plato was, he was so close to being Christian in so many of his thoughts, but right there, he needed to go one step further and to say that Jesus, who was fully man and fully God, was able to show us himself. Jesus showed us through his sacrifice, first and foremost, that it was possible to have a relationship with God, but then, well, previously, he lived a life that was truly blameless. He showed us what it meant to live a life that glorified God. All we needed to do is emulate him. This is why Paul says elsewhere, follow after me as I follow after Christ. His, his call is always to be looking to Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and all of these things. Yet, many of us, either in our outer culture or even in the church, many of us look elsewhere for answers. And then we're often led astray as to what excellence means or where to find it. 
See, I watched a sad video this week where a girl was telling her mom, actually it was a video of a number of kids telling their parents uh, that they were upset with them because they were sharing stuff on social media about them. They were, as far as they were concerned, they were breaking privacy and, and doing all this stuff. And uh, this one girl and her mom in particular, the mom looked at her daughter and said, well, if it's not on Insta, right, and if it's not on Instagram, then it didn't happen. So it wasn't that the, the memory-making event happened that she was to celebrate. It was that it needed to be cataloged online. That was the important part. It wasn't that there was this beautiful gift from God, the daughter herself, the, the wonderful opportunity to go on the vacation or do the thing. That wasn't the, the, the thing. That wasn't the main thing to be sought after. It was making sure that other people knew that she was doing it. That was the most important thing. So there was, there was an identity crisis going on with that. There was a, a foundational crisis. See, Paul says that just won't do. Like, having that sort of perspective on life, it just, it, it's not enough. And, and he doubles down by saying, if there's anything worthy of praise. So this just goes a little bit further than what he talked about as far as things being commendable, the commendable virtue. And it really embodies, it has a person that embodies all of these virtues. Somebody that's worthy of praise is starting to show all of these things. And then he finishes this part by encouraging his readers to, to think about them, to spend time and meditate on these things. Paul says we need to focus our attention on, on true things, on honorable things, on just things, on pure things, on lovely things, on commendable things, and, and things that are worthy of excellence and worthy of praise. Fix our minds on, on those things, not, at, not to escape the negative, but that when we actually are faced with the negative things in life, we have a firm, beautiful foundation with which to stand on to confront them with. We won't get overwhelmed by them because uh, we will have, he's going to get into that, but the peace of God. But what happens if we don't fix our minds or think about these good things? Well, our actions are going to show it. Our actions eventually will always betray the things that we think about. Pastor Tim Keller, he writes, talking about uh, the impact that these sorts of things can have, particularly in the church. And he says, shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians, and he starts off harsh, professing Christians can be racists and greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure, or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. All this becomes, or sorry, all this comes because it is not Christ's love, but the world's power, approval, comfort, and control that are the real roots of our self-identity. Yep. Shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racists and greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure, or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. So basically having a, a, not a deep understanding of, of where identity lies, but a very, very shallow one. All this comes because it's not Christ's love, but the world's power, approval, comfort, and control that are the real roots of our self-identity. So in other words, 
We don't think about these things. As we look through these virtues that Paul's been writing down, you'll notice that they're all rooted in the love of Christ. We can't think about those things properly as, as members of the church unless we're rooting them. Because, I mean, what's lovely if, if Christ didn't do what he did, right? What's commendable? What's praiseworthy? Is there anything beyond the annihilation, you know what I mean, of the universe? Let's, you know, we can get real negative real fast thinking about it, but beyond the, the sacrifice and love of Christ, these things aren't worth anything. So he's saying if we don't think about them and appreciate them as things to be emulated, we often don't think about these things at all, or in respect to things like beauty, we end up worshiping them like an idol and turning into something it was never meant to be. So for me, this tends to lead to negative thinking this afternoon as I'm preparing for this. I, like, I don't know if it was a, a spiritual attack or what, but I got the blues pretty bad. I was sitting in here and I had all of a sudden all of these negative thoughts running through my head cascading. And as they do that, my, my thoughts, my whole demeanor can become polluted and depression or anxiety can start to set in. It can be debilitating. And so this is why in last week's passage, Paul directly addressed anxiety. He talked about it. He talked about how heavy it can weigh on us. It's like this glass of water. So like, how much do you think this weighs? It's about this full... What do you think? A pound? That'd be probably my guess. Something like that. What do you think, Rick? Okay, I'll go with Rick. Half a pound. So from, from my perspective, though, how much do you think this is going to weigh if, say, if I were going to stand here and I held on to this for an hour? It would probably, it, in my mind, it would probably weigh, what, five, maybe 10 pounds or something like that. It would, my body would start to, my arm would start to ache, right? What if I held on to it for a day? What if I stood here like this? But man, like, well, see this claw? Like, I'd, I'd have the claw, right? Like, the pain would be excruciating, right? It'd be numb. I'd, I'd be basically paralyzed. See, the longer that we hang on to our stresses and worries in life, they're, they're a lot like this glass of water. We think about from a while, and nothing really happens, Right? We hang on to them for, for an hour, our souls are going to start to ache. Think about them all day. It could be paralyzing. Paralyzing until we drop them, until we let them go, until we fill our minds with something better. Because while we're holding on to this negative thinking, while we're holding on to these things, what aren't we doing? Exactly. And, and through that, right, we're, we're, not, we're not serving God. We're not, we're not glorifying him in our thoughts. We're not glorifying him in our actions. We're debilitated. We're not able to, to help. So Paul's saying, think of the good, and it's going to set our minds in the right direction. But he doesn't stop there. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. See, although Paul's let them know that there are great things about the way people approach morality, right? He's not, he's not downing on these philosophers. He just says that, it, that we need to pull it all in and look at it through what has been called the queen of the uh, sciences, and that's theology. Look at everything through that, and specifically what Paul has taught them about the gospel. So all these virtues are to be sought out with his teaching in mind, 
And then he's saying, we need to actually do them. We need to actually participate in them. Today, we don't obviously have Paul, but we have Paul's teaching. We have what he's taught, and we have men and women who are imperfect, yet seeking to emulate Jesus in their life, to to take what Jesus and Paul have taught, or what Jesus taught Paul, and Paul taught Timothy, and Timothy taught so-and-so, and and who taught so-and-so, and so on, through the ages, passed it down, with the scriptures always there to help guide us as well, the entire way. We take those things and then we act them out. Do we always get it right? No. We need to be humble and admit when we get things wrong because it's going to happen. It's not God's fault that we let our own self-interest get in the way sometimes of doing what is right. It doesn't mean, though, that his truth isn't there for us to capitalize on. But we can and we should be looking for people who sincerely seek to take this teaching that Paul has given and apply it first to themselves and then when they're ready, to pass it on to somebody else. Come alongside somebody and help. I've talked about uh, my friend Andy a couple of weeks ago who did that by simply hanging out with me and challenging me once a week. It can actually be that simple, but there just needs to be intentionality behind it. We can all do that. Have someone pour into us and then, like I said, when we're ready, pour into somebody else. And if that happens, we're truly going to be glorifying God and it will manifest in God's peace being with us. The peace of God is truly reachable. So I have one simple question that I want to leave you with. And it's for you or for someone that you know. You can decide. Do you want the peace or do you want the God of peace and therefore the peace that comes from his presence to be with you? Do you want the God of peace and therefore the peace that comes from his presence to be with you? It's a question you can ask yourself. This is a question you definitely want to ask somebody else. C.S. Lewis has a a wonderful quote that goes hand in hand with this or, or really speaks into it. And he writes, you can't go back and change the beginning but you can start where you are and change the ending. We're all in a place where we can start. Today literally is the first day of the rest of our lives. And this is why Jesus' sacrifice is so meaningful for us. Why it's so powerful for us. Because, Because he sacrificed himself, we can leave behind all the bad we've done and said and lean into God's grace. And for those of us who already have it, then we can remember it and pass it on. So you remember, it's the sacrifice that made all things possible and what set us free in the first place. Free not to sit in negativity or to try to escape our role as God's church, but to engage with what we see and with what we hear, to think about it and then act accordingly out of it. Act according to what we know, what we've been taught. Friends, the peace of God is reachable, and if we reach it, we can help others reach it too. Such a beautiful mission that we've been given. And part of passing things along, and in spirit of Jesus passing along to Paul, as we move into communion, I wanted to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
but just as a reminder, when we uh, participate in communion, we just, uh, when we're ready, I'm going to read the passage. James, if you want to come on up, he's going to play a song for us, and then we can all come in and partake. James and Vanessa, thank you. Uh, Partake and then come back and, and engage in song. So Paul writes, For what I received from the Lord, when Jesus taught him, and then what I also delivered to you. So Paul took that teaching that he received and he made sure he passed it on. He passed it on to his beloved church. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink the cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.